This morning we will be looking at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 24. If you would please give attention to God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely without error. The word of the Lord is completely authoritative. And the word of the Lord is completely sufficient. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning at verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to the hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it this morning. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we, we ask this morning that you would meet with us as your people. That you would inhabit our praises. That you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, guide us with your word. May it take deep root in our hearts and lives. That we might seek after you. That we might glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. For this we ask in Christ's precious name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Have you ever asked yourself the question, just what is a Christian? How do we define or understand what a Christian is? Sometimes we think that a Christian is someone who believes a certain set of beliefs or doctrines that they can explain it to us or write it down on a piece of paper. Others would say, no, no, being a Christian is the life that you live. You have to do certain things and and not do other things to show that you are a Christian. This morning we will see that the Apostle Paul tells us that the defining characteristic of a Christian is to be a new creation in Christ. And when we see that we are a new creation in Christ, then we understand that our minds are free to believe the truth and that our lives are lived in accordance with God's truth. But it all begins with that new creation that comes from a sovereign act of God's grace. 
And so this morning, Paul will paint for us a picture in bright colors of the difference that the new creation makes. First, he will show us the way of the world. What life is like for those who reject Jesus Christ and who refuse to follow him. Secondly, he will show us the difference that Jesus makes. How Jesus makes all the difference. And then thirdly, we will see the way of Christ. The way of life for those who have embraced Jesus Christ and who are a new creation because of the work of God. The way of the world, the difference Jesus makes, and the way of Christ. Let's begin then by looking at the way of the world. As we start to look at our passage this morning, it is good for us to remember that we have been told by Paul to live in accordance with God's calling. Now, that can be a challenge for us because we may mix up our motives. We may think that we are to live in accordance with God's calling because morality is good. And it is, but that's not the reason. We may want to live in accordance with God's calling because we believe it will make us happy. It may, but that's not the reason. We may even think we must live in accordance with God's calling because we owe God for what He has done to us. And we do owe the Lord, but that's not the reason either. The reality is that we are called to live in accordance with God's calling because it is a necessity. Paul shows us this in verse 17. He says, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles. Very forceful language. Many of us are used to this language and we think of necessity in a different way. The young people among us have heard that must from our parents. You must clean your room. You must finish your vegetables. You must empty the dishwasher. And we know that the must carries with it consequences that come if we don't do what we must. We want to avoid the consequences. It's necessary for us to do this. And so therefore we do it. But you see, that's not the kind of must that Paul is talking about here. What Paul is talking about here is not a moral necessity. What Paul is talking about is a necessary consequence of who we are in Christ. Because we are in Christ, we must of necessity live a certain way because of who God has made us to be. Our entire outlook has been changed. And so we should not envy the world and their manner of life. We should not struggle to try to get out from following God's law. It should be a necessary consequence of what God has done in our lives. Because you see, there is a fundamental difference between the person who is in Christ and the person who is not. The way of the world, the world that rejects Jesus, that does not want to have faith in Him, does not want to believe in Him, the way of the world is a downward spiral. 
And this spiral goes downward because of their view of God. You see, when we think about the world and those who reject Jesus, we ought not first to think about their behavior. Now, I know that's often the first thing that comes to our minds because it's what we can immediately see. We see that people who do not believe in Christ, they act a certain way. And we want them to fix themselves. We want them to reform themselves, clean themselves up. Can't you get with the program? Can't you act a bit more civilized, we want to say with ourselves. But it doesn't start with wrong behavior. It actually is experienced, Paul says, through wrong thinking. Do you see this here in verses 17 and 18? He says, the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. And because they are darkened in their understanding. We'll get to this in a moment. But it's wrong action that comes from wrong thinking. The question then we should ask ourselves is, what is at the basis of wrong thinking? Thankfully, Paul tells us. He tells us that this futility... And this ignorance and this darkening is due to their hardness of heart. It actually begins with a stubborn refusal to follow after God. That's where wrong thinking starts. And when Paul uses this word hardness, he wants us to have a picture in our minds. This word is often used of a certain type of stone. Very hard marble. Stone that is immovable, unbreakable almost as it were. And it can also be used to petrify something. If you've ever been to a petrified forest, you know what the trees are like. Where they should be alive and the bark should have feeling. They're almost like stone or flint. It's like they're not even really trees anymore. They've been turned into something else. Some of you may have experienced this kind of hardening in your own life, and you know how unpleasant it is. This word is also used in medical journals to describe arthritis in the joints. And you know what arthritis is like, don't you? You've either experienced it or spoken to someone who has. It's when your joints get all stiff and they don't want to move, and moving them is very painful. It's because they're hardening. What Paul means here is, is that the world has become so hardened to God and His Word that they're insensible. They're beyond feeling. It's the same thing that Paul says in Romans chapter 1. He says in verse 18, he speaks of all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. You see, it's not that they don't know the truth. It's not that they don't understand the truth. It's that they suppress the truth. Again, three verses later in verse 21, he says, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking. Same phrase that Paul uses here in Ephesians 4. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Same image that Paul uses in Ephesians 4. You see, they understand and know who God is, but they reject Him. 
You see, there are no true agnostics. There are not even any true atheists who aren't sure about God, who aren't sure if they should believe in God. No, what there is, Paul says, is the anti-theist, the one who is against God, who does not want to know God, does not want to submit to God, and therefore hardens his heart and rejects the way of the Lord. Now, this is not an excuse Some of our translations, older translations, will use the phrase blindness instead of hardness. And it's a perfectly good translation of this word because one of the ways that this word is used medically is to speak of people who have hardening of the eyes and therefore begin to lose their vision. They go blind. The problem is when we speak of blindness today, we think of someone who is helpless someone who is a victim of circumstances, who wishes to see, but can't see. But that's not the kind of blindness that Paul is talking about. What Paul is talking about here is a willful blindness, a shutting of the eyes, because we don't want to see what is out there. Perhaps a good visual image of this would be to use another sense. Have you ever had the experience of being around someone who said they can't hear you. And I don't mean because you need to speak up. I mean because they put their fingers in their ears and shout, I can't hear you, I'm not listening. Now we wouldn't say, if we could just get this person a hearing aid, they'd be just fine. If we could just explain calmly and reasonably what they're supposed to do, I'm sure they'll get it. No, it's not the ears that are a problem. It's the heart. They don't want to hear, and so therefore they stop up their ears. That's the picture Paul wants you to have of the world. And this leads then, Paul says, to an ignorance of the mind. He describes it in verse 17 as futility, as vanity, as worthlessness. It's a worthless way of thinking. He describes it as being darkened in their understanding in verse 18. As if a black cloud has come over our minds and we're unable to form a cohesive thought. He describes it as ignorance. But once again, this is not something that merely can be rectified by more teaching and better education. It is a willful ignorance. It is a mind that does not seek after God because hearts are hard. Now this actually seems kind of odd for Paul to use this kind of argument, doesn't he? Because if we pulled the magazines off of the rack in the stores, or if we looked at the newspaper or read articles online, it would be Christians who are being accused of being anti-intellectual, being dark of mind, being ignorant, right? And yet here is Paul is making the argument that it's not believers in the Lord Jesus Christ who have difficulties thinking. It's the world that has difficulty thinking. Now, the world does think it has a corner on truth. But that's not something that's new today. When you speak to someone who has this kind of viewpoint today, it is nothing new. As a matter of fact, 
as your pastor, I give you permission to say, well, you're about as advanced as the Greeks from 2000 B.C. Now, they won't realize that's kind of a backhanded compliment. They think they've gone so much further than the days of stone and bronze. But you see, in Paul's day, Greeks thought the intellect was the most important thing. Greek thought was highly intellectual. They were philosophical. They were scientific. The number of inventions and math theorems and all of the things that the Greeks invented is well documented. And their thought was that the intellect was the most important part of a person's being. As a matter of fact, they set up a dichotomy between a person's mind and their body. And the whole idea for them of how you came to be saved, to be rescued, was if you could somehow free your mind from your body. The mind was to become all-encompassing. And this wrong way of thinking in Greek days expressed itself in several ways. For some, they were polytheists, believing in many gods who had the same sorts of traits and emotions as people. It's not very pretty. For some, they were pantheists. They viewed all of creation as somehow being a part of God. That we were not separate from each other. That we're all part of some big cosmic blob of consciousness. For others, they became atheists and did not believe in any gods. But all of these are just simply different expressions of the same worldview that rejects the true and living God of the scriptures. As a matter of fact, there was so much similarity between all of these varying viewpoints that Edward Gibbon, the famous author of The Rise and Fall of the Roman Empire, put it this way. To the philosophers, all religions were equally false. To the common people, all religions were equally true. And to the rulers and politicians... All religions were equally useful. You see, all of this is united in an intellect that is against God from hearts that are hard. The more that they reject the truth, the darker their minds became. Paul then begins to describe the next descent in the spiral downwards. From hard hearts to darkened minds, down to reckless living. You see, because of the hardness of their hearts, because of the darkness of their minds, Paul tells us in verse 18, they were alienated from God. They were cut off from God. Now, this shouldn't surprise us. Because if God is the source of life and truth, if we reject Him, we will not have life and truth. And a deadness of soul begins to take over us. And it affects how we live. Paul says that they became, in verse 19, callous. And have given themselves up to sensuality. Greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Now you know what calluses are, don't you? If you haven't, then somebody needs to take you to go out and work in the backyard for a bit. Because an hour or two with a shovel, or with an axe, 
or with some sort of non-power tool will begin to show on your palms, on your hands, won't it? You can tell someone who has worked outside for much of their life because they have hard calluses on their palms. And those calluses protect you, don't they? You see, when you don't have calluses, your skin rips and bleeds and hurts. But when you develop these calluses, your hands don't hurt anymore. Why? Because your skin has no feeling. Right? It's as if dead skin is on top of live skin and you can do the activities outdoors and you will not feel the pain. That's the image Paul wants you to have of the world. They are calloused and beyond pain. Now before you jump and say it would be great not to have any pain, I want you to think about what a blessing pain is. No, I haven't lost it. Imagine if you did not feel pain and you were in the kitchen and you put your hand on the counter and didn't realize that it was on the burner of the stove. And after a few minutes you realized, oh, I've just got a stump of a hand left. I wonder why I didn't think to take my hand off the stove. Or imagine you broke your leg and didn't feel the pain of the broken leg and attempted to go and walk and run on that leg. Imagine the damage you would do. You see, pain is there given to us by God to warn us against something worse happening. But you see, the way of the world is to go beyond pain. To not hear the word of the Lord. To spiral downward more and more into misery and wickedness. And so they are no longer restrained. They've thrown off all restraint and they go to every kind of sensuality. Now, the word here, sensuality, does not mean just a certain kind of sin. It actually has the connotation of going beyond all restraint, behavior that is beyond the pale. It is a sensuality that knows no boundaries. You see, what Paul says is that the world has lost all self-control. And they actually have become eager. He uses the word greedy to commit all sorts of sins. They're trying to one-up each other in sin. You can imagine what a downward spiral that is when we are competing to commit the worst of sins. They flaunt their base appetites and their sins. And isn't this what we see all around us? Let me just ask in one small vignette. When was the last time you saw a public declaration of discomfort or embarrassment about a pregnancy out of wedlock? I can't recall it. When the last time that marriage was upheld as being the only true and right way for a family. But you see, we've gone beyond callousness. We celebrate this wickedness. We see this and instead of hiding, we flaunt it on the front page of the newspapers. Isn't this wonderful? It's before our very eyes. This is the depth to which the world has fallen. Now seeing all of this, if we're honest, can leave us discouraged, can't it? 
We long for better days. We, we hope that the world could get back to the way it was. We try to set up structures or laws that will help us. We want to tell people to change, to clean up their act, to reform. What then can we do? How can we find a solution? The solution can't be found in reform. Remember we said the root of the problem is not action. The root of the problem is not even thinking. The root of the problem is a hard heart. You see, people can't think straight. And they can't think straight because they don't want to think straight. But there is a solution. Paul reminds us that we've experienced that solution. He has this emotional interjection. Can you see it? But that's not the way you've learned Christ. He wants us to sit up and take attention. The solution is only found in Jesus. It's found in learning Christ. You see, we must see the world and ourselves as we truly are. And so Paul describes this education we need, this school that comes to us, and he uses three verbs. Learned, heard, and taught. Now, this describes more than simply learning a set of facts. We first are to learn Christ, which means we must be students of Christ. We must be disciples of Christ. That's what that word disciple means. Student. The word in the Bible for disciple is the same word in verb form that Paul is using here to learn Christ. We have to know Jesus, not just know about him. Think about the disciples in the Gospels. They didn't just cram for an exam about Jesus. What's Jesus' favorite book in the Old Testament? True or false, Jesus went to Samaria. How many times did Jesus throw out the money changers? No, they followed him around every single day. They heard him speak. They watched him live. They were a part of his life. They were not just learning about him. They were learning who he was. There was a personal relationship that they entered into with him. Remember, the root problem is not ignorance. It's not just learning. It's hardness of heart. You see, what Paul is saying is we must be changed. We must be softened. We must learn who Jesus is. The second thing that we must do is we must listen to Christ. We must hear Christ. Now, if we look here at verse 21, the ESV does something that I think is not as helpful as it could be. Our translation inserts a preposition. Assuming that you have heard about him. Now the word about is not in the Greek. And I understand why they're doing this. Because there is some level in which we must hear about Jesus. To hear his commands. To hear what he loves. 
But I think it's helpful to look at this as Paul actually says it. Paul tells us we must hear Christ. Now, how can we do that? How can we actually hear Jesus? We can't be with the disciples walking around Galilee. How can we hear Jesus Christ? The answer comes to us in understanding who Jesus is. For after all, who is Jesus but God? And God speaks to us in His Word. And so as we read and study God's Word, we hear the voice of Jesus. And you see, what Paul is telling us is that we must spend time in God's Word. We must study it. We must memorize it. We must hear God's Word as having the authority of Jesus. When God's Word is read, when God's Word is preached, when God's Word is properly taught, then you are hearing Jesus speak. We must hear the Lord. Now, this is why biblical teaching is so important. Because if we don't have proper biblical teaching, we will not hear the voice of Jesus. We're not just trying to give practical instructions about life. That's why sermons about the ten best ways that you could do this, or the eight best ways to live this way, aren't real preaching. Because preaching is the voice of Jesus reaching down to you in all of his authority. It is Jesus himself who is our teacher. But Jesus is also the context or the atmosphere in which we learn. Look at Paul says that we were taught in him. There's the third verb, taught. Now we would expect Paul to write taught by him. Or taught about him. What does it mean to be taught in him? As the truth is in Jesus. You see, this is an odd expression, but we have to understand that Jesus is not just the message. But he is the medium as well. You see, Jesus is the embodiment of the truth. And because of this, as we come to know Jesus, as we come to study God's word, we do it in the context of a relationship with Christ and we are changed forever. Next, we are told how we are to live in Christ. We've already seen what the world looks like. We've seen the difference that Jesus makes, how we are to learn from him. And now we're told in verses 22 through 24, how we are to live. Now, I want you to notice something interesting about these verses grammatically. There's something missing here that we would expect. We would expect, as Paul begins to describe how we are to live, for Paul to give us commands. This is what you are supposed to do. This is what you should not do. Do this. Don't do that. But the interesting thing is, there are three aspects that Paul brings to us, and none of them are a command. They're all actually grammatically infinitives. Now, what an infinitive is, it's a verb that helps to finish off 
the concept of the main verb. And the main verb here is what? The main verb here is to learn. So how are we to learn? In learning, we are to put off our old self. We are to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. And we are to put on the new self. You see, what Paul is telling us is, what we have learned to learn Christ is to understand that we are a new creation in Christ. And the new creation lives a certain way. It's not as if this is something we ought to do to satisfy Jesus. What Paul is saying, you've learned what conversion is. You've learned what the difference Jesus makes. And now, live what you've learned. You know that a new creation puts off the old, puts on the new, and is renewed in the mind. You see... We're told to put off our old self, not because it would embarrass people in church. Not because God is somehow going to hit us with a thunderbolt if we don't. No, we're told to put off our old self because we don't need it anymore. That's not us anymore. It's not appropriate anymore. Have you ever been on a very relaxing one or two week vacation? You know, maybe one at the beach. The kind of vacation where you wear pajamas about 10 hours a day and you get dressed up by putting on sandals and shorts with holes in them and shirts with stains on them. You're just relaxing. And at the end of that wonderful vacation, you go back to work. Do you go to work in the sandals and the shorts with holes in them, and the shirts with stains on them? I don't think so. Why? It's because it's not appropriate. You're not what you were doing. You're in a different place. And that is a picture of what Paul is saying here, that if we are new creations in Christ, we need to put off the old self and all of its actions because they're no longer valid for us anymore. The problem is, is that like our vacation wear, it's just so comfortable, isn't it? It just seems and feels so natural. And so we have to make a conscious effort, Paul says, to put aside what is no longer a part of us, what no longer represents us. We must shed it. We have already put off the old self in our conversion. We are no longer the person that we were. But now we must daily continue to put off the rejected lifestyle of our old self. You see, the truth is that the victory has already been won. But we do need to live like it. The second thing that Paul tells us is he reminds us of the power to live differently. He says in verse 23 that we are to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. You see, the power to live differently is found in the renewal of our minds. This shouldn't surprise us. Paul just told us that the spiral of bad and wicked living is a result of bad thinking. And so if we are going to change our behavior, if we are going to live in a way that glorifies God, we must begin 
with our thinking. The solution is to be found in a renewed, right-thinking mind. And this is a continual process. The verb here is a present infinitive, which gives you the idea of something that happens right now and all the time. Now, how do we do that? How are we renewed? We must continue, Paul says, to be transformed by the Holy Spirit. He puts it this way very concisely in Romans 12, verse 2. He says, do not be conformed to the world, that is, live the way the world lives, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. You see, Paul is encouraging us to look to the Holy Spirit, to renew our minds To teach us. For after all, that's what the Holy Spirit is. The teacher, the comforter. And this requires us to be in God's Word. To be reading God's Word. Studying God's Word. It requires us to be in prayer. To be praying and seeking for God's will. We are to be renewed in our mind. Finally, we're reminded of a third thing. To put on our new selves. Look at verse 24. And to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Now notice here what is not emphasized. Our behavior is not emphasized. You might expect the Bible in church to tell you all of the things you should do to be a good Christian so that others would see you as a good Christian. But that's not what Paul says. Paul says we are to put on our new selves. You see, it's not the behavior, it's that there is an entirely new us. We are new in Christ. And this new man is not our work. And so our emphasis, our focus, our praise does not go to ourselves for being able to keep it together for a day or a week or a month. It's not for all of the good things we have done. The emphasis goes on Jesus and his work because the new man comes to us from God. We are born again by the work of God. It is the gift of God to us. Now, putting on the new man is important, and it's something that we can miss. Often we think we are putting on the new man merely by avoiding old habits. We clean up our language, and we think we're putting on the new man. We avoid hurting other people, and we think we are putting on the new man. But the problem is, Paul is telling us here more than just to stop doing the things of the world. He's telling us to actively put on the new man. It's not don't do this, don't do that. The new man is created after God's likeness. We are being made into the image of God as we should be. But even beyond that, we are to express God's righteousness and holiness in our lives. We can't just stop hating other people. We have to love them. 
We can't just stop lying. We have to be people of the truth. We have to put on the fruit of the Spirit daily. Patience, joy, peace, kindness. Paul is giving us a daily reminder of the great change that Jesus has wrought in us. You see, the truth of God's Word is that following Jesus is not simply doing the things that Jesus commands. Following Jesus is to be an entirely brand new person with a new living, beating heart, with a renewed mind in which our actions of obedience to Jesus just spill out over the top. We don't even have to work at it because of what Jesus has done. This is what it means to be a new creation in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we ask this morning that you would make us more and more aware of the work that you have given to us, the way that you have blessed us through the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, make us so aware of the change in our lives that it would show for all to see, that we would seek your will first. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen.